I don't know what any of that means, but I trust you. <laughs> uh, so, shall we get started? Let's do this, this brave new world of uh, remote thingamajibbing recording. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award podcast now coming from two different locations. We are watching every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And this episode is number 0389. I can't remember now. Uh, it is called Smiling Through. Good old Smiling Through, the second version of this tale, which is surprising to me. But there's a third one, too. So it's kind of like uh, East Lynn in that way. I've never heard of it, but apparently it really... Uh, I guess, gelled with people at the time. <laughs> yeah, there's something very East Lynn about it. It's very melodramatic, um, very feel-goody. Um, yeah. Not that, but I mean, filled with, you know, very gut-wrenching uh, scenes and all that stuff. I mean, at least for people at the time. It, oh, it, it struck us jaded uh, millennials as maybe a little bit silly bit saccharine um but you know what that's that's okay yeah yeah that's fine sometimes sometimes that is just how you tell the story you have to tell i guess but there are a few moments where the kind of saccharine whimsy sort of takes away from the gut-wrenching parts in a way that i don't think the makers of the movie intended no i this is probably the first one where I really got a mystery science theater vibe from it. Because well, you were right when you pointed out that it, the opening is very similar to Plan 9 from Outer Space. The old man <laughs> mourning his wife in a, in, a, in a cemetery. Yeah, oh, we should probably cover how we happened upon this, uh, this copy from, from Amazon as kind of like the only one we could find of this particular version of the movie. Uh, I guess, yeah, the later one was a lot more popular. The the later colorized Technicolor sort of version was a lot more popular, I guess, and also so similar that we started watching it thinking that it was the 1932 version. And yeah, first, first I exactly. thought like, oh, someone colorized this. But no, then we realized like it's supposed to have Norma Shearer in it. And it doesn't. What's going on here? It it has Jeanette McDonald, who's basically the same type of actress. But uh, (laughs) that was our first sign. Like, oh, wait. So I'm glad you got a copy, though. I feel, you know, the completists that we are, we wouldn't have wanted to leave it out. Right. But I guess one of the interesting things about it was that this other version starts off at least exactly the same. To the point we started watching the 1932 version and wondered if we had gotten the 1945 version without the colorization. Colorization, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But but no, here we are with a smile and through. Let's see, before we jump into the summary, should do you want to go through uh, uh the rating process for the listeners at home? Right. It's been a while. Uh, it has since- been a while. I, I moved. That's why we are in uh, different locations for so the audience can keep score. And so uh, <laughs> I had we had a bit of a reprieve, but now we're back. And we're smiling through the process. Oink, oink. Yeah, indeed. So uh, what we do on this show is that we are going to give a short summary of the movie and give our little observations as we go through it. And then at the very end, we will rate the movie on different categories, such as acting, writing, cinematography, and overall. And then we will give the movie a chance for some bonus points with costumes and set, boldness, legacy, longevity, and technical. And uh, I don't know. I don't have any like immediate assumptions about the scores of this one, but like I said, it really made me want to riff on it mystery science theater style but it's it's one of those mystery science theaters where it's just good and coherent enough to still be make funnable it's not like so bad that you want to tear out your own eyes 
Well, yeah, and here's my controversial opinion about Mystery Science Theater. I always enjoy the riffing more when the movie isn't as bad as some of the worst, like when it has a little better quality. Like my favorites are like the 1950s B uh, science fiction movies uh, where they're like, there is some like good production quality going on and it keeps your attention, but you could just laugh at the utter goofiness Mm -hmm. of the plot and some of the overacting. And I think, yeah, I feel like... Well, not quite minus the sci-fi aspects here. I guess more supernatural aspects here. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, all right. Shall we dive right in? Yeah, let's start off with this uh, goofy, spooky ghost story. Okay. This second adaptation of uh, Two Janes, Janes Cowell and Murphins, 1919 play, Sidney Franklin's 1932 Smile and Through opens in 1898 on Leslie Howard in old man makeup. He plays aging aristocrat John Carteret, sitting in his garden and calling to the spirit of his beloved lost bride, Moon Yeen Claire, dead for 30 years and with the wackiest name I've ever heard. Yeah, that's right, folks. You heard correctly. That is Moon Yeen, and it's not a hillbilly name. It is. I I tried looking it up on Google and all I got was someone asking, hey, my grandma's middle name is Moonyin. Where did that come from? And someone answered, probably from the movie Smiling Through. So I guess they just made it up for the play and the movie. Uh, But it's goofy and distracting. And I wish they hadn't named her that. Like, what is it? Moonyin. It's just it's goofy, Jason. Yeah. what, What is what is that even? Come on. You're you're, I mean, it, you're a ghost, and it's hard to take you seriously if your name is Moon Ying. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of a most ghostly name with the word moon in it, but it's, I guess it's just supposed to highlight just how 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 special and unique Moon Ying was, although we really don't see much evidence of that. Because Norma Shearer appears as the ghostly apparition of Moon Ying, still dressed in her wedding gown, trying to bring comfort to her groom who feels he can hear her. And I remember when we were first watching the colorized version, which at this point with the appearance of Moon Yane is basically shot for shot um, from the 32 version too. We both just kind of burst out laughing because she just kind of appears there as a beautiful ghostly specter in her wedding get- gown. And it's just, it's kind of silly. She, she does use the term dear heart. Which... She does use the term dear heart. It's just the syrup is just pouring all over. Okay, so let's learn more about uh, Sir John, the the formerly betrothed to the deceased Moonyin, 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 Moonyin. All right, Sir John clear, uh, cheers somewhat at the arrival of his good friend, sort of Doctor Owen, played by O.P. Heggie. However, his mood quickly turns when Owen tells him that Munin's sister and her husband have drowned, which this is not like the bad news. This, I mean, they kind of just shrug this off. It's like, hey, they drowned. Wow. Whoa, that's pretty bad. Uh, But they did leave behind a four year old child uh, who is named Kathleen. So the relationship here is that the daughter of his betrothed sister is her the niece. relationship. So yeah. her, her niece. So they are almost, almost uncle and niece. Yes. But not quite because he and Munin, as we'll find out, never actually got married. Yeah, they were close though. So they close. Were very, very close as we'll learn. <laughs> uh, so Owen, who is, I'm just going to say it right now. It doesn't seem to be a very good friend. Um, John doesn't really seem to like him all that much a lot of the time. And he's usually breaking in some bad news to John or like berating John for being so selfish. But um, so Owen tries to convince her to take, uh, tries to convince her, tries to convince John to take Kathleen in. Uh, but he is still haunted by the past and set in his ways. And John refuses. And Owen basically tells him, you're you've become selfish and and self-pitying and uh, a little child's exactly what this house needs. And he, you know, storms off. 
And then you later see him just like appear with this tiny cherubic child and yeah. kind of like giggling, like pushes her into the room and then shuts the door. It's like, this is a fun prank while pushing this orphan into this drawing room to like bamboozle my friend. Right. Owen has secretly brought little Kathleen, uh, played by Cora Sue Collins, with him, and he leaves the two alone together. The sad, the proper little girl grows on John, however, and he takes her in. And I have to say, I do really enjoy, uh, I mean, I really enjoy Leslie Howard's acting throughout, but I really like him in this scene because it's, you know, pretty like sappy, you know, old man gets charmed by little girl, but he really sells it. I think, I mean, he was a young man at this point playing an older man. Right. And, you know, you really get to that kind of like sort of gruff, uh, like, what are you doing here? And then kind of slowly, like almost offers her port and then like, backpedals and office room milk so and i think the little girl is pretty good too at uh, oh, yeah. playing someone who's obviously pretty frightened because <laughs> one old one old man just pushed her into a room with another old man she doesn't know um but so i think i think it's the it's a it's a pretty good scene for what it is yeah yeah i would agree i mean it's it's low-hanging fruit emotionally but uh, yeah. but they, they pull it off it's fine it's fine so we skip ahead to the year 1915, Ooh. where 20-year-old Kathleen is played once again by Norma Shearer. And on her birthday, her dear Uncle John wistfully tells her how much like her Aunt Moon Ying she is. A little creepy, uh, but... A little creepy. I was really scared they were going to go down the track of him, like, suddenly becoming attracted to her. And I'm so, so glad they did not. <laughs> yeah, I... I mean, I didn't think they were going to go that way, but I kind of said like, I have a more, yeah, yeah, I have a more perverted frame of mind than you, I guess. I'm glad I was disappointed. I, uh, my mind didn't go down that path, but I recognized that path as I walked past it. <laughs> yes, yes. I didn't think they'd go that way, but you, you, there's always that fear. You never know. Um, Kathleen is being courted by the rigidly boring Willie, played by Ralph Forbes. And one night when he tries proposing to her, they are caught in a storm and seek refuge in a deserted mansion not far from Sir John's property. Uh, it's a very gothic, spooky place, very long abandoned, and they find a long discarded invitation for John and yes. Moonyin's wedding. Yes, they are. The What's that? I was about to say they're they're invited in by riffraff, basically. Um, it really is, does seem that way. <laughs> uh, and... It also kind of reminded me of State Fair, where you have this incredibly boring guy to contrast, which I guess is must be kind of a trope that they're developing in these romantic movies. Well, you know, uh, once again, I just got to bring up the fact that I read the Cary Grant biography. And yeah, there's uh, poor Ralph Bellamy is like made a career out of playing the boring guy that the girl ditches so she can be with Cary Grant. So uh, it's, uh, yeah, this kind of helped establish that trope, probably. Mm -hmm. Poor, poor, poor boring Willie. Uh, The romantic Kathleen invents a story about the man who owned the house killing himself in despair because the beautiful Moon Yin is to marry another man. Willie is unamused. Like, I get it, Willie. That's that's kind of a weird thing to say. Yeah, she fantabulates a lot from this piece of paper uh, yeah. she she kind of gets carried away i mean it's a spooky atmosphere you know they're in a this long abandoned drawing room with a little fire crackling in a storm without and all that so i guess it's understandable yeah but um yep they find this piece of paper and she really kind of goes to town with like coming up with all the details of why this piece of paper was on the floor and et cetera, et cetera. It's, um, it's amusing to her, but anyways, when all that is happening, uh, in walks a stranger, uh, Dr. Frankenfurter. I mean, yep. No. Um, uh, what's his name? Ken. Ken played by Frederick March. Excuse me, Frederick. Yes, Frederick March. Although neither identifies it at the time, he and Kathleen fall in love at first sight. She is attracted to his impulsive, lighthearted attitude as he makes himself at home, although this further turns off conventional Willie. He tur- really pouts about it. It goes into the corner and everything. I know. It's kind of sad. Uh, he sees what's happening. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I, I guess, poor guy. It turns out that March is Kenneth Wayne, the son of the late Jeremy Wayne, who had owned the mansion and whose portrait still hangs above the mantelpiece. And who to whom he bears a striking, striking, striking resemblance. And um, it, they're they're really into having younger people resemble the earlier time younger people. Yeah, in, in this movie, I, I mean, there <laughs> using are the same actors. Yeah, in that uh, uh, Jeremy Wayne has a mustache, and Mooneyane has blonde hair, and Norma Shearer has brown hair. Um, right. You know, just to pull the wool over our eyes a little bit there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he just rips off his mustache, and he's a and he's his own son. Uh, he's his own son. Oh my gosh, he's a time lord. That's what it is. I knew it. <laughs> Infatuated with Kathleen, Kenneth contrives different ways to meet her. Finally, encountering her while he's on bicycle as she's out riding her horse near her home. They go out to tea and stay for hours, and are. <laughs> And, you know, the, this ritual, these rich elites uh, force the poor woman who owns the tea shop to, like, make them dinner when she's not really equipped to do that. And then they stay for hours um, discussing the coming war, which Kenneth has come over from America to fight in. Uh, they also discuss the nature of love as the night goes on. And I do appreciate that they actually spend some time establishing their relationship. It's not just they fall in love at first sight and that's that. They're in love forever. They actually kind of you know, have them, you know, converse about, you know, big topics to know that that's not just shallow attraction. So I appreciate that. Yeah, they um, they kind of had one of those drunk moments where they're they're at the pub and they've been overstaying their welcome. And but they're talking mm. about life, man, like they're talking this, about life, man, you know, this Aww. war. And what is love? Baby, yeah. don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. There's like, you know, every once in a while, like the window panes will rattle because, you know, the fighting going over and going on in France, which is pretty terrifying and pretty effective. Oh, yeah. Kind of a motif throughout. The rattling windows being shaken by artillery fire, I guess. Yep. Which I, I didn't know was a thing. But according I mean, to this I, movie, I it was. I forget, yeah, how close England and France are. Just, just a channel separating them. That's true. All right. So at a dinner with Sir John and Owen, Kathleen coyly references her new friend and when pressed reveals his identity. Sir John is in shock and storms out before telling her she can never see Ken again. Desperate and confused, Kathleen tracks John down in his garden and pleads to know why. Why? Why? Sir John relents and tells Kathleen the full story of Moon Yin's death, which we see in a flashback. A big... <laughs> Big flashy flashback. Big Very flashy the, flashback. The flashiest of flashbacks. I think at one point he actually does say, "Why well, I, I could see it like it was yesterday." And then <laughs> what happens? The camera goes off, and we're in the same scene, but some thirty years before. You or, know, because the clothing is different. Yeah, the clothing is different. Suddenly, Norma Shearer is blonde. Um, the night before their wedding. Sir John holds a huge ball for Moonyin and all their friends. He is too happy to take seriously Owen's warning about Moonyin's childhood sweetheart, Jerry Wayne, again, also played by Frederick March, who threatens to harm John for taking Moonyin away from him. After singing the title song, Smile and Third to her guests, although Norma Shearer really wasn't singing, uh, Moonyin goes to meet with a desperate Jerry in the garden. He professes his love and says she'll never marry another man, then flees in anger. Uh, oh, I love the way Frederick March just hams this up. He really commits <laughs> to it. I love it. Uh, you really get, I mean, he's scary. Like, and it's, oh, yeah. I feel like that's needed because, frankly, uh, Howard and Sheer here, are, you do kind of want to punch them both in the face. They're so <laughs> goofy. goofy. But John finds Moonyin in the garden, and although she doesn't tell him about Jerry's visit, she finds comfort with him and is looking forward to never saying goodbye to her dear John ever again. Ain't nothing bad going to happen today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it is a very sappy uh, love scene. And uh, frankly, I had no problem with that. It might be I a mean, bit much for some audience member. <laughs> It, it was it was borderline for me. Let me just tell you. 
<laughs> it's okay if it was. It yeah. was it was very very sappy. Okay, I mean, I was basically like kind of thinking of singing in the rain. Oh, Pierre, you shouldn't have come. It was very much almost kind of like a parody of movies like this. <laughs> uh, yeah, but see, I I am here for it though. You know what? Yeah, just just ladle on the syrup, guys. Just go for it. Commit that you got to commit to the premise, no matter what the premise is. Okay, so at the wedding, Jerry predictably storms in during the vows, and when he tries to shoot John, Munin jumps in front of her intended, taking the bullet instead. She oh, dies. I know. Who could have foreseen? <laughs> she dies in John's arms as Jerry flees the scene and escapes to America, where there are no cats. <laughs> and you took issue of, of Owen as a friend. But I got to say, I take more issue with his crappiness as a doctor. He <laughs> yeah, just kind of right. like looks at her and is like, well, nothing I could do. It just doesn't even try to do anything for her as she says, like, this hurts. And he's just like, man, well, what are you going to do? You're dying. So, so, you know, Dr. Owen, crappy friend, crappy doctor. He's an aristocrat. What can you say? Yeah, I guess it would kind of um, interrupt the melodrama if he was like sitting there like, all right. And just, you know, tear, tears off her uh, wedding corset and starts bandaging her and and like tried to like do emergency surgery and oh man we could have had a really boss like bloody surgery scene we don't even get a battle scene in this movie that takes place during world war one howard's all of them oh it would have been a totally different hammy situation where he just kind of cries out and tells john that he's he's just a doctor not a miracle worker damn it john i'm Uh. a doctor not a, not a bridesmaid. <laughs> Only the power of a bridesmaid may bring her back to life. Uh, yeah. So, after Jerry flees and escapes to America, in the present, Sir John tells Kathleen that he hunted Jerry for years. And when he yeah. says this, you kind of get, I got the picture of him in like a pith helmet, like chasing down Jerry through. No, no, no. He's, through through he's the jungle old. with an elephant gun. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess he chased him throughout the world. I think he mentions like South America at some point. He's he is totally like a you know old school English aristocrat. He probably just hired private like private eyes to hunt for him while he sat sadly in his garden talking to Munin's ghost. So I John, Sir John just does not really strike me as a man of action. You don't think so? You don't see him in like really ridiculous socks pulled up to his knees, perhaps, uh, perhaps mean, with a giant feather in a in a hat with the brim turned up on one side. Look, Leslie Howard himself was a very brave man. He actually died in World War II, um, so he's a very brave man. But I can't say the image he projects on screen always says "man of action" to me. He's he's very. He's a very dreamy romantic type, which is why, you know, in theory, he would have been a great choice for Ashley and Gone with the Wind if he hadn't, you know, slept walked through the park. But uh, <laughs> he knew what he was in. So, but yeah, yeah, either way, he never finds him. And then he finds out his rival's dead and his son is, is making time with his niece. Yeah. And he makes, um, he makes Kathleen promise to never see him again. And she does promise very reluctantly. I mean, it would be kind of hard not to after his story. I mean, it's like, who? he's really, really hanging on by a thread here. I'm not going to push him over the edge. It's a, it's a very effective story. He, he could have pulled it out and maybe half of it was true. Yep. I mean, Leslie Howard, he does do a fantastic job. Uh, he really underplays. Um, I watched this with, with my dad and he, uh, he pointed that out that Leslie Howard, like really kind of underplays it to perfection, which is good because, you know, Frederick March brings a lot of intensity to the role and Shearer is pretty melodramatic. So it's nice to kind of have somebody who's, who's brings a little more weight to the proceedings. Mm. However, Kathleen finds her promise impossible to keep. After having the housekeeper turn Ken away repeatedly, she finally meets with him and tells him everything. 
<laughs> I kind of like how he reacts like, wow, that's a real thing to find out about your dad. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is, Ken. That's a real thing to find out about your dad. Yeah, I think uh, I think Ken took this surprisingly well. Yeah. You know, he is from the rough and tumble uh, uh, West, you know, from America. So he's, you know, he's probably heard of worst fathers in the, in the old frontier. Uh, I guess that's true. Oh, 1950, not exactly frontier times, but still pretty rough and tumble compared to the staid country houses of England. Oh, he, he was in the sequel where Jerry goes west. Jerry goes west. I love it. Although they agree they shouldn't continue their relationship, they kiss passionately, passionately and realize they're too in love to stay parted. The day before Ken is to report to Dover, Kathleen convinces him to take her with him and marry him there. And marry her there. When she tells Sir John of their plans, he tells them both that if Ken marries her, she will be dead to him and he will never take care of her again. Again, very effective acting by Leslie Howard. He's been so affectionate to Kathleen throughout that it's very chilling when he's like, I would rather see you dead. Wow. Yeah, it is. Rattled, Ken realizes he can't take Kathleen away from comfort and stability when he may never come back from war. They part, promising to marry on his return. And I do think that it was pretty funny and intentionally funny on the producers' parts. Their parting scene is pretty ridiculous with her like sobbing in his arms. It's like, oh, okay, it's all right. I gotta go. So I think that was <laughs> kind of funny in a sweet way. Yeah. Um, and he very heroically uh, does the smart thing, which I wasn't always expecting to you know, from a melodrama, usually the most romantic thing is not like also just the most sensible thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a very, it's a very, uh, uh, good decision. And he eventually makes Kathleen see that. Yeah. See, and that, and that's a, a sign of true love that he's not going to be selfish about it and is looking after her. I do have to say for a sappy melodrama, they do paint like a, a realistic depiction of a good relationship with him and uh, Kathleen. Oh yeah. Yeah. For, for a melodrama. For a melodrama. Yeah. It's a, well, I mean, I think the relationships in, in this movie are solid. They're just really ridiculous, which makes it again, that's, that's the sweet spot for, for mystery science theater. Exactly. Gosh. Rift tracks. If you guys want to do this. Oh, I hear Mystery Science Theater is planning to uh, restart again at some point. So should volunteer this movie as their as their candidate. Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't man, know if they've ever done the Best Picture nominee before. Well, this one was tough to find. So it's not like uh, not like they're raking Top it in. This one. <laughs> True. Uh, so after the war, Kathleen waits for Ken at the train depot. And though she's happy to see Willie back in safe, boring old Willie. Oh, boring Willie. Uh, she, is des- uh, she is desolate when the depot empties and there's no sign of Ken. Owen finds him at the hospital, paralyzed from the waist down and too embittered and ashamed to see Kathleen again. However, the next morning she tracks him down at his home, where he's planning to leave for the dock to America at 10 o'clock. And... Um, I thought that it was kind of interesting that he goes back to basically his dad's house in in England, um, I guess, because he had just shown up when we last saw him there. Like he was only there for a few days. So I was surprised that he would really have anything to move out of there aside from the really good wine. <laughs> well, that's it. You, this, his, little, his Batman says like, oh, we got some pot down there. Shall I grab it? And he's like, heck yes, man, go. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, he might be paralyzed from the waist down, but he still has a sense of humor and a good taste for um for good port. He still wants to party. Yo, oh, yeah. He is uh so he he sees Kathleen and it's pretty clear that he is um still has feelings for her, but he doesn't want to impact her with with his wounds. Um and he is able to lean against the piano and hide his disability from her. And he convinces her that he no longer loves her. She leaves in tears and heartbroken himself. He collapses with only his Batman for company. What, Joe? What, what, what you doing, Gamba? Just like that. And uh, define Batman. We're not talking about um, the scientist, right? 
well, yes, we are. Uh, but we don't know. We don't know anything about this guy. Um, uh, Batman, I think that's the right term uh, uh, for back in World War One. Kind of the sort of the valet for uh, more for like officers. Ah. Um, so a lot, I guess, a lot of them did become like their. If the officer was like rich and had titles, lots of times, uh, if the Batman was lucky, he could actually become his uh, valet uh, during peace times. Uh, World War One is just a terrible melange of just rich people getting all the benefits and poor people suffering for it. I mean, look at freaking Owen. He's a he's supposed to be a part of the war. He's a Doctor Owen, and he just. He just lounges about playing chess with Sir John all day. I mean, yeah, he's too yeah. old to be out on the battlefield, but geez, you could at least be like treating people on the battlefields. Anyways, enough with the class warfare. This is a, a lovely little melodrama. So let's get back to it. Back at Sir John's, Owen tells him the truth about Ken and urges John to tell Kathleen the same. But John is still too filled with hate and tells Owen to leave. Yet when he sees how dejected and depressed Kathleen is and realizes that Ken lied to protect her, he can't stand her unhappiness and tells her everything. She hurries to the dock to stop Ken from leaving. Owen comes by the mansion and John apologizes in his own way, and the two sit to play chess as they have for years. John falls into a deep sleep in the middle of the game, and Owen leaves him. Moonyein then comes to John and takes away his spirit, the two finally marrying in the afterlife as Kathleen and Ken arrive home together. So, which is pretty, pretty sweet, I have yeah. to say. It did, it did tug at the, the heartstrings a bit. Oh, yeah. It's a nice conclusion to a, to, a, to a sappy, but not completely unlikable movie. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Okay, so that was the movie. The movie, folks. How about rating this puppy? Well, like you said, this is going to be kind of a tough one. It's it's hard to say, but let let's give it a shot. Okay, our first category up is acting. How well do you think this was acted? I would give it full scores on Leslie Howard and Frederick March. I think they both come at it very differently, but just as effectively. Leslie Howard underplays whereas frederick march really kind of brings some much needed energy to to the movie because aside from kathleen all we've seen in this movie are old people and so he kind of really brings you know some youth and vigor and intensity while leslie howard you know he just because he underplays it he's so able to really sell his despair when he has to yeah. Be desperate. Yeah, and we know we're not going to get that youth and vitality from from Willie. So no, no, boring or, old okay. Willie. Um, but I can't give it full marks because good old Shearer. I she's not terrible, but she's so everything is just a little too forced with her. I think they just, they put too much stock and like they did this to her in the divorcee too. It's kind of like how poor Marion Davies was treated by, uh, William Randolph Hearst. And of course, Norma Shearer was married to, um, Irving Thalberg, the boy genius producer of MGM of like, you know, my wife or my girlfriend has to be this, this beautiful, perfect woman in this movie that all the men are madly in love with. And well, frankly, there are very few people out there who kind of live up to that ideal. And so she can't help but fall short a little and really try to force it. And so it just does not come off. Lots of times I just don't feel a genuineness from her, like especially in the scene where she's Moon Yin with uh, Jerry in the garden. And he's scary. He's intense. He's he's telling her that uh, he's not going to let her get married. And she's just a little like, oh. Jerry, my dear childhood sweetheart, oh, let us not despair. And it just doesn't feel like she's completely connected to what's going on around her. And that could be something to do with Moonyin's character. We don't get to know her well enough to know. So all we really have to go on is Shira's performance. And I just don't think it measures up. So because of that, I'll knock off a couple points and give it a seven for a seven. Yeah. What do you think? It's um, it's difficult. 
because there are some, you know, some really solid acting examples. And there are also parts where I just laughed. Um, and yeah. I can't tell if that was the acting or the material that they were given to act with. And it takes really, this should have been a silent movie. I agree. And there was a silent one done in 1922, which would be fun to track down. I bet it works a lot better there. You're right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Because people saying the words that are coming out of their mouths. I mean, I'm going to give it points for uh, for some of the actors being able to say those words and have it come across Mm -hmm. convincingly or at least entertainingly. But you're right. uh, Sheer and. some of the other actors too at different points are just kind of like there's no other non-wooden ridiculous way of saying these things. Yeah, yeah. I agree. So for that, I think oh gosh. I was gonna give it a six, but I'm gonna bump it up to a seven because they're not responsible for the writing, which is our next category. Writing. Uh, yeah, let's go into that. So let I'm gonna give the writing a four. A four. Wow. I think that might be one of the lowest of a, you know, non-offensive movie. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just the dialogue is sometimes so painfully hokey and just not how real people talk. And I think that's why the actors struggle so much, like you said. I So, I mean, it just it just does not really come across well. Yeah, it was very Troy McClure in the Muppets, um, where Aww. he where he takes Miss Piggy's dainty hoof in marriage. Well, can I take your dainty hoof in marriage? <laughs> um, Miss Piggy as Mooyeen. Oh my god! Oh, I want a Muppets version of this movie so bad. It, it would work better. <laughs> oh my gosh, Kermit as Sir John. Oh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> I'm also going to give it a four. Uh, so we are now up to 22 so right. it's building some points it's not doing great but you know yeah it's like the good stuff is good the bad stuff is bad that's profound right, we're very matchy matchy so far um so up next we have cinematography that was pretty good um you know, they keep it pretty dynamic. Uh, I mean, once again, this is this was written from a play and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the action does take place in Sir John's home. But, you know, they make sure to uh, take it to other locations. And again, that's more setting than cinematography. But I feel like they do some unique stuff with the I mean, the ghost effect in the beginning is kind of laughable, but I feel like it works more in the end when they join their wedding party in the afterlife. So I'll give it a. I'll give it a seven. Seven? Yeah. A little above average. Hmm. I'm going to... Gosh, this is a tough one, too, because it didn't really jump out at me as, like, fantastic, but it also didn't jump out at me as terrible. Well, again, I'm trying to remember all the times that I actually just flat out laughed. Um, I know. There were some there were some abrupt cuts I am I'm remembering that it is just kind of like so melodramatic and then you just quickly cut to something else. Um, oh, yeah, I have remembered that. But um I'm gonna give it a six, so not too much worse than yours. Yeah, um, yeah. and I understand seven. I was about I was debating between seven and six. But yeah. I'm still thinking maybe I, I graded the acting too high, but I do again think that mostly had to do with the writing. So yeah. I, think, I think we're we're on the right track here. And let's see. So our next category is overall. How well did the acting, writing, and cinematography come together for an overall product? Five. Five. Yeah. I mean It was okay. <laughs> It was okay. I mean, for what it was, it was effective, but what it was just wasn't all that great. I am actually going to bump it up to six because I yeah. I enjoyed this trash fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, again, I'm I'm kind of spoiled because I know what movies lie ahead for us, and they are so much better than this that I can't oh. help but kind of jump ahead in my scoring. But oh, I for still sure. Just think this 
This is just, it was just a little too long and a little too saccharine. Not terrible. It was watchable. It was better than I thought it was going to be going by that opening scene. Not a whole <laughs> lot better. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not great, but it's fun, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And that's wrong with fun. It's fun it's, if yeah. you've had a beer or two and you're with a bunch of friends. Yes. And you're, yeah. and you're ready to laugh at this ridiculous movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I I think this is like the first I think I already said this, but this is the first movie that we're we're not to that point yet, but I would give it a Notsker as a joke. <laughs> uh we gotta have our own like golden raspberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one that's that's bad but not offensive. <laughs> you know, that's true. That is true. Um I mean, it's offensive because it's about a bunch of aristocrats during English aristocrats during uh, World War One, and none of them were heroes. Uh, it, the, the aristocrats during then, so it's offensive on that account. But I mean, other than that, you're right; pretty inoffensive. Okay, so we now have a chance for bonus points because they are sitting at a 46 at the moment, and they need some bonus points to to, to make a respectable good. score. Yes. So, costumes and sets. I oh, think they did decently well here, right? I think so. I think they did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be that person to give it a five. I even love Kathleen's uh, little outfits uh, during 1915. You think I'd just go gaga over the Victorian stuff, but I actually kind of prefer the kind of sporty uh, uh, look of, of 1915. But and you know the sets were all gorgeous too, so they did do they did that pretty good. I mean, did it look all look more like sound stages than actual sets? Sure, but they were very, very good sound stages. Yeah, I'm actually going to follow up um, with another five, and I'm going to say that a, a decent portion of that is one particular outfit that Nora Shear has in I think it's the first scene when we fast forward to 1915 where it looks like she's wearing like a perfectly normal like 1930s suit um, <laughs> and and like ridiculous sleeves ridiculous like yes gauzy sleeves and I was oh, like I these these two costume elements do not go together and and I'm here for it I love it she it's you know Norma Shear did know how to wear a good outfit. I will give her that. <laughs> All right. Um, and I think, I mean, this kind of carries over to our next category, which is boldness. And I'll say it is very bold to take a regular suit and then add the world's most ridiculous sleeves. to it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's give it a point for that. Um, otherwise, I mean, not really a lot. No, that I'd about it so let's give it a one for the sleeves we call it that yeah yeah it's not uh i mean i gotta say that it's not as it's not oscar bait which is kind of like the opposite of bold in, yeah. in my mind um but it's it just isn't that challenging <laughs> No, no. Uh, on any front, it's supposed to be just kind of a popcorn movie. I mean, the only thing I could see argued is that uh, the hero's fa uh, father is an outright villain, uh, Jerry, Jerry Wayne. But um, but he barely appears. He barely appears. And uh, yeah, so yeah, not very bold. No, no, not at all. Bold that they just let Moonyeen die. That Doctor Owen just washed his hands of it and and yeah, strolled away. Yeah, isn't called out for being a crappy friend to Doctor is a is a whole other episode worth of of bold choices. <laughs> Our next category is legacy. How how did this movie impact later movies? Do you think? I guess I'll give it two points just for the fact that you know it did get a remake. I mean that's got a point to something. And I guess it was like the biggest hit of Norma Shearer's career at that time, I found out. So oh, interesting. I think that, that helped her star rise. So, I'll, yeah, two points, I guess. 
Yeah, I'm going to match your two points on that as well, because it got a remake. And I guess it. Yeah, the exactly what you said. It buoyed, uh, buoyed some careers here. Mm-hmm. And our next category is longevity. How well does this stand up over time? I don't think I'll be giving it any bonus points here. I mean, it just, like you said, it, it, to, to a modern audience, it's, it's going to appear pretty laughable. True, but I'm going to give it, hmm. Oh gosh, there, I was going to give it one or two points. And my argument for two was that one for it not being offensive, like that there's no racist stuff in it. Aside from the fact that there are like no non-white people in the entire movie. What a bar. But then there's also the fact that, um, it's not archaic in that you have no clue what's going on in some of these movies yeah. for longevity, but I think, I think a one, a sturdy one for a both of those one, things together. Point five yeah. for not making me cringe in terms of like progressive politics and, yeah. and another half for making like, yeah, someone could watch this and laugh, but I mean, they could watch it. And not, you know, actively hate it like, you know, certain traitor horns I can name. Oh, right. Or uh, in old Arizona or uh, yeah, one of those. Yeah. Okay. And our last category for bonus points is technical. And I can think of one technical effect in the whole thing. The ghost. (laughs) The ghost thing. The ghost thing. So, you know. uh, And, you know, I would. What do you think of like the old the old age makeup and then like the young age makeup on Owen? Um, I mean, I think that's that's okay. I mean. I guess that, that would probably fall more under costuming, though, which we've already covered, and we gave the full five too. So I'll, I'll give it. I'll give it. I guess a two for ghostliness and uh, you know <laughs> filming, filming the actors somewhat okay when they're when they're supposed to be older or younger. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, the ghost effect was so cheesy. It was pretty dang cheesy. Like, and this but, is this yeah. is this is the thing. It's like, am I rating this on? on how good it was or how much I enjoyed it because it was not, (laughs) but it was not good, but it did make me laugh pretty hard. (laughs) And you have to understand, you know, that we, that we live in the 21st century back in 1932. That was probably quite impressive. Right. We've seen superimposed images in some of these movies, but this was, this was like, you know, one where she did things and everything and talked. She did things. She was hovering there all supernaturally. I will go ahead and give it one point. Okay, that's fair. For ghostliness, and I guess 0.75 for ghostliness and 0.25 for old age makeup and things like that. Yeah. Um, Which brings us to a total of 66 points. Not... Great. Not great. Not great. Smiling through. Can't still, <laughs> still ahead of uh, One Hour With You, Cimarron. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me see who else is the closest in the 60s club. Um, Alibi. Oh. Is the closest, yeah, okay. I think, with 61. Okay. Very different movie. Very different. Very different. So. There's our final score. Of course, it's not exclusively about the scoring. Um, Now we have to decide whether or not we want to nominate Smiling Through for the very prestigious Notsker Award, a movie podcast movie award about movies. I'm afraid we'll have to retitle it Grimacing Through because, sorry, I ain't giving it a Notsker nom. Oh, gosh. So so close my only argument would be as a joke <laughs> that's not what we're set out to do we're very very serious no. uh, studies podcast uh, i will also give it a no but i will also say if if you have nothing else to do and you want to you want to have like a good laugh like watch the first couple of scenes it, it exactly. slows it slows down in the middle it gets less funny um yeah 
but I just remember just going through like just laughing at first off the uh, the scene from Plan Nine playing out, <laughs> and then you know he's being very sad in his garden, and then there's this goofy ghost effect come in, and just, she yeah. very melodramatically calls him dear heart. Oh yeah. gosh, we forgot to mention the inconsistent English accent. Yeah, from I mean, Norma Shear. Yeah, Norma Shear. She's kind of all over the place. Basically, she has shaky voice syndrome where there's it always sounds like she's fading on the verge of tears. It's very much a kind of voice that a lot of actresses in melodramas used back then that has not particularly aged very well. Um, you know, I have to say Leslie Howard and Frederick March, their performances have aged well, but I'm sorry, Norma, I don't mean to keep dumping on you. Hers did not. Um, but there's still genuinely touching moments, I think, throughout this movie. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not outrageous that it was nominated back, back in the day, but I just don't think it quite measures up to some of the movies we'll be watching later on. No, of, of course it won't. Uh, (laughs) I sure hope not. Um, yeah. Oh gosh. And I specifically remember at one point she makes fun of the American Ken for being American and he's like oh how did you know it's like well he pronounced I forgot what the word is like you pronounce it this way and then oh yeah ghastly instead of ghastly and uh, later she pronounces Dova Dover like yeah yeah like it's just like a rare moment of like she's she's been keeping up this English accent then all of a sudden it's Dover and I was like oh man yeah almost A little, a little all over the board there, but you know. Well, so yeah. I hope you guys at home have not found this program ghastly, and no. will consider to perhaps listen to us again. Sorry about the delay in coming out with this episode. Um, again, Laura was moving. We have excuses. We have excuses. It's not my uh, fault. I, I'll pillory myself. It's all me. Oh. But uh, yeah, if you've enjoyed this program, uh, please share it with your friends and uh, and family and strangers on the street. And uh, especially with those uh, old movie buffs that you are friends with and uh, give us a review on iTunes. That's always helpful to get feedback. You can share find it with the ghost of your fiance. Yes. Share it with the ghost of your fiance um, and share it with Beyonce. <laughs> and uh, if you could please. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at comebackastar. You can email us at comebackastarpodcast at gmail.com and uh, we do have a Facebook. It is not very active, but people still join it. Um, So that's exciting. And uh, yeah, kind of join there and start getting get, get conversations going about how wrong we are or about how right we are or how much you thought that uh, Smiling Through was robbed and that it was a genuinely fantastic uh, movie. Yeah. Prove us wrong, kids. Prove us wrong. <laughs> Alrighty. So, uh, that's it for me. I hear the dogs anxious to uh, run off. That's true. I'll go attend to the dogs and until next time, uh, see you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>